BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's Monday, April 9th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, and if you haven't been there for a while, I highly recommend it. We've been working hard to update our website with all kinds of cool new information. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Also, if you want an ad-free version, just head on down to patreon.com slash inquiringminds and pledge $5 or more a month. And that will get you access to our brand new Patreon-only ad-free feed. No theory in the history of science has been more misused and abused by cranks and charlatans and misunderstood by people struggling in good faith with difficult ideas than quantum mechanics. That's a quote from our good friend and former guest on this podcast, Sean Carroll, as he talks about one of the most successful scientific theories and probably least understood scientific theories in quantum mechanics. Now, do you have a handle on what quantum mechanics is? <laughs> well, no, but I do have a pet peeve about how quantum mechanics is used. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> which, is, well, which is like, you know, taking one thing we don't understand to explain something else we don't understand. Like, obviously, you know, consciousness is hard and quantum mechanics is hard. Therefore, <laughs> quantum mechanics must explain consciousness. <laughs> pet peeve. I, I fully admit I don't grasp quantum mechanics because most of what quantum mechanics is, is math right now. Um but it's what it's really been designed for, what it's been good at is important. And so when you track back to Einstein's general theory of relativity, which explains so much about the universe from light on down the line, there is one gaping hole that we haven't totally solved, and that's gravity in a lot of ways. And quantum mechanics has done a better job of explaining uh, aspects of gravity and fine details as consequences of general theory of relativity that than Einstein ever could. And quantum mechanics has been around for a long time. It's been around since basically the 1920s and 30s. So that's quite a bit of time. But for a theory to be around for that long and still no one has a good explanation on it, that tells you a little something about it. And while I totally admit that I don't understand quantum mechanics, our guest this week says that statement doesn't go far enough. 
he concludes that scientists themselves are misinterpreting quantum physics, and maybe it's time we all had a history lesson. Our guest is Adam Becker. He's a physicist and a writer. He's out with his first book entitled What is Real? The Unfinished Quest for the Meaning of Quantum Physics, which he wrote with support from the Sloan Foundation. He analyzes the famous or infamous Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics, which has dominated the last 80 years. It basically goes like this. Shut up and calculate. Great interpretation of a theory, right? But you know how they say history is written by the victors? Well, science isn't immune to that either. And Adam's book really details the history of Bohr and Heisenberg and how their interpretation of quantum mechanics has come to dominate modern physics. But there are hidden figures in physics that really did amazing work. And the consequence of their work is a totally different interpretation of quantum physics. And that debate is still raging today. And yet, you know, I don't know of anyone who hasn't taken a very high level university uh, course and has learned about quantum physics. I mean, most of us really just stick to Newtonian physics and sort of the things that are tangible, the things that we can see with our own eyes, the things that we can observe. Um, and of course, that's that makes it much easier to to learn the laws. And yet, the field is dominated by quantum physics, as far as I understand. That already supersedes anything I understand about quantum physics right there. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with your interview with Adam Becker. Adam Becker, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you, Kishore. It's good to be here. I get that everybody quotes Feynman when it comes to quantum mechanics. Yeah, and nobody yeah. understands quantum mechanics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it, it's trite, but there is like a nugget of truth in there that is incredibly difficult to explain this theory that that posits an idea that we're here and not here. And take us into like the kind of idea behind what we understand quantum mechanics to be. And, and by yeah. we, I mean the popular sort of rendition of quantum mechanics. Right. Yeah. So so here's the deal. You know, I'm going to contrast quantum mechanics with Newton's physics, right? Because that's that's sort of, I think, the easiest way in to, to explain why it's so weird is to compare it with what came before, right? So uh, Isaac Newton, uh, late 1600s, writes down these laws of physics and, and to, you know, more or less, this is the physics of the next 200 years after that. 250 years. And his physics, you know, it describes a world that was profoundly counterintuitive to the people, you know, to, 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 to Newton's contemporaries. But it's still a world that's sort of recognizably our world, right? It's a world where you describe the location of an object using three numbers. And those three numbers are, you know, it's, it's location in the three dimensions of the world around us. And, uh, and things move in straight lines through that three-dimensional space until they're knocked off course, which was really controversial when Newton suggested it, but it's not hard to understand what that means. Especially in, in a modern context. Right, exactly. Um, well, quantum theory goes a different direction. Yes, it does. Yeah. So if you want to describe the location of an object in quantum physics, and I mean just one object, like one electron, you don't need three numbers. You need an infinity of numbers that are scattered across all of space. And that's kind of strange, right? And it's not clear immediately what that means. You know, the most the most intuitive way to, to think about that would be to say, okay, maybe the electron's kind of smeared out, right? 
And so the numbers describe how much of the electron is in each location. That's not true, as it turns out, because no one's ever seen anything less than one whole electron. If you try to go looking for the electron, you'll find it in one spot. And that's pretty weird too. And so the fact that we have this kind of smeared out picture of where the electron is, except for when we go looking for it, when we find it in one spot, has led to this popular conception of quantum physics, which is backed up by you know some statements from the founders of quantum physics that in the quantum world, things aren't really anywhere until you look at them. And then when you look at them, the act of looking causes them to be in one spot. This originates back in the 20s, this yeah. idea of quantum theory, yeah. which is weird to think about that quantum mechanics is almost 100 years old yeah, yeah. at this point, yep. given how mysterious and how much of a active research area it is still. Yeah. Um, but this originates with a famous meeting in Copenhagen. Yeah, um, sort of. I mean, so so Copenhagen was the center of the physics world in the 1920s because that was where Niels Bohr's institute was. And Niels Bohr was the the godfather of quantum physics. You know, there was there was no single person who put together the entire theory. It was it was a collective effort, but Bohr was sort of the spiritual leader of the group of physicists that did it. And so in the 1920s, I guess it was 1925, two rival theories of full-blown quantum mechanics showed up, one from Werner Heisenberg and one from Erwin Schrodinger. And by 1926, it was clear that these were two different aspects of the same theory, that these were, these were just two different ways of writing down one theory. And so we have this completely worked out theory of quantum mechanics but there's a great deal of disagreement about what it means. And eventually at a meeting uh, in Belgium in 1927, those disagreements come to a head. And naturally, because the meeting's in Belgium, they reference Copenhagen yeah. in the outcome of the meeting. Right, and, well- Because that's the name of Bohr, where Bohr's is instituted. Yes, that's right, yeah. The standard way of thinking about quantum physics is known as the Copenhagen interpretation, not because of this meeting that was in Belgium, but because of Bohr's Institute being in Copenhagen and the fact that this set of ideas is associated with Bohr. What happened in Belgium was that the Copenhagen people, Bohr and Heisenberg and Wolfgang Pauli, Max Born, a few other people, met up with the rest of the physics world, including, you know, Albert Einstein uh, and Erwin Schrodinger and some other folks, Marie Curie was there. And they basically, they hashed this out. They said, okay, you know, we, we need to talk about what quantum physics is and what it means. And the Copenhagen group basically said, yeah, what quantum physics means is pretty much nothing about the world around us. Quantum physics is a way of calculating the outcomes of experimental setups. And it's not really something that gives us insight into the world. And there, you know, Bohr famously said that there is no quantum world. There's just a quantum mechanical description and that things don't become real un until they get big, that the world of the small isn't real in the same way that the world around us is real. And that's kind of strange because the stuff in the world around us is made of tiny stuff. 
Yeah, that, I think strange is an understatement. Yes. Um, Einstein said that it sounded like the delusions of an exceedingly intelligent paranoiac. He, he called it an epistemology-soaked orgy. Einstein did not mince words. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> I like I like Einstein show, throwing shade. Einstein and throws it, so much shade. <laughs> uh, but the consequences of these discussions and others yeah. leads to a basic sort of interpretation of what quantum mechanics is that has largely persisted for yep. the last hundred years, persisted all the way into undergraduate college classes. Yep. Now, and, and what's the basic idea of that Copenhagen interpretation? These days, the best summary I've ever heard of the Copenhagen interpretation, and it's the standard summary that you will hear people say if you press them on it, is uh, shut up and calculate. <laughs> uh, it, the, the idea is, yeah, quantum physics is weird. There's all sorts of weird questions associated with it, but it works really, really well. So just don't ask those questions and use the theory to um, make predictions. That usually doesn't end well for um, for scientists. No, it doesn't. The, doesn't. the, the yeah. don't ask questions. Yeah. And so this interpretation has been very successful at, from the um, from the standpoint of this theory, this realm of exploration, explaining a lot of phenomena. It hasn't yeah. really quote unquote broken. Oh it, yeah. So I, I see reasons for that that dogma to sort of take hold. Oh yeah, it's a very it's a very pragmatic position, and quantum mechanics, quantum physics works. You know, quantum physics definitely works. It works phenomenally well. It describes an enormous variety of phenomena to an extraordinary degree of accuracy. It's uh, it explains the the circuitry buried in your phone and explains the nuclear hearts of distant space probes. It explains why the sun shines and how your eyes can see. I mean, it explains it explains so much and it can be used to do so many things. And you can do all of that while shutting up and calculating. And, and so from a pragmatic perspective, that's fine. And that's part of why this unsatisfactory and frankly untenable position, the Copenhagen interpretation, has persisted for so long because it, it turns out that you can just shut up and calculate. Just to give our listeners a tangible I thought experiment yes, of yeah, what this absolutely. feels like, yeah. of what Copenhagen occurs as. I, I think Schrodinger's cat is probably the most famous yeah. thought experiment of this, that yeah. observations disturb this system. and like Right. And, and I mean, an observations disturbing systems, that's fine. That's mm -hmm. sort of unquestionably true in the quantum mm -hmm. world. The quantum world is uh, twitchy and sensitive. It's, it's very sensitive to to small disturbances because it's the world of the small. Mm -hmm. But in order for a system to be disturbed, mm -hmm. it needs to exist before yeah. you look at it. Uh, you know, if, if you're going to disturb it by looking at it, it must have been there before you looked. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Schrodinger in 1935 came up with this thought experiment, Schrodinger's cat, basically to flag up the problems with the Copenhagen interpretation because he thought it made no sense. He said, look, say you have a cat in a box and you throw into that box a sort of Rube Goldberg contraption. You have a, a weak radioactive source set up with a Geiger counter to detect the radiation from that source. And if the Geiger counter detects radiation, it will release a hammer that will smash a vial of cyanide that will kill the cat. And, uh, and so- I thought it was cesium. Right? Um, 
Well, there's different ways to kill the cat. There I are. Guess. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think I think cesium was supposed to be the rate. Of, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Experiment. It doesn't matter. What matters is you have some quantum thing that's going to trigger some system that will kill the cat uh, if it goes off. And there's a and you leave the cat in there long enough that according to quantum mechanics, there's a 50-50 chance that the cat will die. Because you know, the longer you leave it in there, the more likely it is that radiation will be given off. So Schrodinger says, look, you know, according to quantum mechanics, you leave the cat in there, there's a 50-50 chance that radiation will be given off. And that means that the quantum theory just gives this strange mathematical object that has half dead cat and half a live cat. And the Copenhagen interpretation says, oh, well, what that means is the cat is neither dead nor alive until you look. And Schrodinger said, this is clearly not the way the world works. Because it basically, I mean, you take away reality from yeah. from this, this idea that there's nothing happening in there until the observer comes into the... Exactly, yeah. And I mean, and the thing is, I, Schrodinger's Schrodinger's point was, look, maybe it's true that quantum things, that really small stuff behaves and even exists in a different way than big stuff. That's not impossible. But if that's true, we need a really solid story about how that gives rise to the world around us that definitely exists independently of people looking at it. You know, when I'm not looking at the cabinet next to us, it's still there. When I'm not looking at this microphone, it's still here. And when we're not looking at a cat, a cat is either dead or alive. And so his point was, forget the radioactive source emitting or not emitting radiation. The cat is definitely either dead or alive before you look. And yet when he published this paper with this thought experiment in it saying, you know, this is the problem. The the proponents of the Copenhagen interpretation, you know, uh, Niels Bohr, Wolfgang Pauli, Werner Heisenberg, they they piled on. They said, no, you know, this is this is exactly what happens. The cat is neither dead nor alive. You can't talk about the state of the cat before you look, because talking about what happens before you look is in principle not something you can know anything about, and therefore it doesn't exist. And that last move is just wrong. It's that, just incorrect. That's it's some mistake. like swift politic politicking there to like turn oh, your yeah. like biggest critic into mm-hmm. into your poster child for explaining your yep. ideas. Oh yeah, no, there's some really like smooth political operation going on here. I mean, this is definitely a story with a lot of politics and a lot of interpersonal weirdness. So even though this this interpretation, and I think it's important to use that word interpretation. Absolutely, yes. Um, dominates for a long period of time, there, yeah. are, there are definitely naysayers. Yes. And some of these naysayers are not infamous people. Like Einstein is one of the early yes. naysayers. And he comes out with EPR with, uh, with a number of other uh, physicists yeah. that start to poke holes in this in this interpretation. Yeah. Can you tell us about EPR? Yeah, yeah. So EPR is this paper that Einstein and Podolsky and Rosen, two of his collaborators, come up with in 1935, the same year that Schrodinger does the cat. In fact, the cat is sort of a response to EPR, um, trying to build off of what they did. But um, but yeah, Podolsky and Rosen are two of Einstein's collaborators. It's called EPR because Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen from their initials. The basic idea there 
which is actually easier to see if you look at some of Einstein's letters to Schrodinger at the time, because Einstein himself didn't write this paper. Podolsky wrote the paper, and Einstein wasn't really thrilled with how it turned out, but that's whatever. Um, but you put Einstein's name on it. Yeah, you put Einstein's name on it. Yeah, exactly. So so the the key with the EPR paper, the, the, the idea there is you have a different thought experiment. You have two particles that interact, and you can think about it as two particles colliding. And then they go flying off in two different directions. And you can, in quantum physics, say, okay, you know, if I know exactly how fast one of them is going, then I can figure out how fast the other one is going. Mm -hmm. But in the same way that quantum physics doesn't let you say whether the cat is dead or alive before you open the box, quantum physics doesn't let you say how fast these two particles are going before you measure the speed of one of them. It just says once you measure the speed of one of them, you can figure out the speed of the other one. So Einstein's point with EPR was, oh, okay, well, there's two ways to understand that. One way to understand it is to say, oh, these particles collide, they go away from each other at some speed, and those speeds are set. You just don't know what they are. When you look, you find out what one of them is, and then you can infer what the other one is. Uh, and it's just that quantum physics doesn't let you know what they are in advance because the theory is not complete. But otherwise, it's just like two billiard balls colliding, right? You know, mm -hmm. you have two things collide. They go off in different directions. If you know how fast one of them is going, you can figure out how fast the other one's going. That's one option. The other option is magic. The yes. other option is to say, oh, when I measure one of them, the other one instantly knows what I've measured its uh, speed to be. And so it adjusts its speed to be exactly in line with what the first measurement was. Like there's some sort of communication. There's some sort of instant communication at a distance. Einstein called this spooky action at a distance. And he he actually called it magic. He said, you know, we can't we can't do this. That's not physics. That's magic. Because it violates the idea of relativity. That yeah. Have, it, it, that it, there's faster than light communication between these particles. Right, exactly. You'd have faster than light communication between these particles, which violates relativity. And to Einstein, it also violated one of these basic ideas of how science works, that, you know, something that happens on like a planet orbiting a star in the Andromeda galaxy right now can't affect what's happening here. Because if it could, that would break a lot of our ideas about way the the world works. And Einstein thought that it would actually break the idea of science because you can't you can't do a controlled experiment because you can't control what's happening on a distant planet in the Andromeda galaxy. That's Einstein wasn't really right about that. But still, like it breaks not only relativity, but a lot of our intuitions about how the world works. So Einstein publishes this paper with Podolsky and Rosen. And basically saying, look, quantum physics is either incomplete or it has this spooky action at a distance, what's called non-locality, because it's not local. Things can have effects beyond their local environment. So he he publishes this paper saying that things are that quantum physics must either be incomplete or non-local, and is met with this wall of gibberish from Niels Bohr. Um it's really an exceptionally bad paper. In fact, when, when Bohr went back and looked at his reply to EPR about 15 years later, he apologized for uh, writing it so poorly, but then didn't clarify what he meant. So, But, a, but what seems to happen from the sort of a zoomed out yeah. uh, nature is like, 
this starts the the sort of the first crack, if yeah. you will. Mm-hmm. Like this really opens the door to more scientists saying there's something wrong here. This is EPR is not complete by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. It really just points to the problem. Yes. EPR EPR really does point to a problem. And Bohr and Heisenberg and and the others, they don't really close that. No, they don't. Yeah. They don't respond. Like I think most of the rest of physics was just sort of satisfied by the, by the idea that Bohr had replied, even though his reply made no sense. Like this is, this is a reply. Bohr himself said that it was terrible. When I first read Bohr's reply to EPR, I actually went to the professor I was working with and said, hey, um, is there a better translation of this? And he said, no, 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 it was written in English. Oh, no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really nonsense. But Bohr thought that he had found a way to evade both the idea that quantum physics was incomplete or that it's non-local except it's not clear if that's what he thought like but people people thought that the EPR yeah. thing was wrong and that Bohr had shown it was wrong and that's what was important but as you said other physicists later on sort of picked up that thread and ran with it yeah in a weird way you're showing sort of the persistence of certain like scientific dogma and ideals yeah. that happen in our system we yeah. like have this you know idealized world of peer review and self-correction, but it, yeah. it's very divorced from reality oftentimes. Yeah. Anyways, picking up on the the um, EPR paper, yeah. uh, let's fast forward to David Brom. Uh, uh, Bohm. Bohm. Yeah, Bohm. David Bohm. Yeah. Uh, it's a- so David Bohm, I'm just a pronunciation avoids me today. Yeah, it's, okay. uh, it's a quantum mechanics yeah. situation. <laughs> so David Bohm really starts to take this idea of non-locality and expand upon it. Yeah, yeah. So, so Bohm took this EPR experiment, he put it into this textbook that he wrote about quantum physics, where he tried to defend this position, this Copenhagen interpretation, and he tried to explain why the EPR experiment wasn't a problem. And he actually, he he boiled it down to uh, a really, really, he, he made it even simpler and more elegant than Einstein and Podolsky and Rosen had. That phenomenon that Einstein described in in the EPR paper is known as entanglement, quantum entanglement. So Bohm tried to explain entanglement the way that that the Copenhagen interpretation would and explain why the EPR paper was wrong. But as he was putting together this textbook, uh, he started to really doubt that Copenhagen was right. And by the time the textbook was published, he was pretty sure that there was a problem there. And shortly after it was published, he got a phone call from Einstein. Uh, so this was 1951. This is pretty late in yeah. Einstein's career. So yeah, you're like, yeah. you take this call. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Einstein Einstein died four years later. Yeah, at this point, Einstein was very much, you know, the Einstein that we think of. He was this international celebrity, most famous scientist in the world, one of the most famous people in the world. Uh, he had done special relativity, general relativity, all of the stuff that he's known for, he'd done by that point. And so, yeah, Einstein calls you up in 1951. You take the call. Yes. Uh, so Einstein calls him up and says, you know, hey, uh, Dave, nice work. Come to my office. I want to talk to you. And so they have this long conversation where Einstein basically says, you've done as good a job of defending this position as I think anybody could. And the reason that you're having doubts about it is because the position doesn't work. Copenhagen interpretation just doesn't work. The world can't be that way. Quantum physics isn't wrong. It's just somehow incomplete or our way of thinking about it is wrong. And so Bohm left that meeting 
feeling like a weight had lifted from his shoulders and thinking, could he find another way to think about quantum physics? And the, the astonishing thing is that within a couple of months, he had. He found a completely different way of thinking about quantum physics, one where objects always have very definite positions and particles are guided in their motions by uh, these pilot waves that you know, determine how they will move. And the funny thing about these pilot waves is that they are non-local. They actually, you know, the, the two options from the EPR paper, either, either quantum physics is incomplete or there's magic, there's non-locality. Bohm's theory took the magic route. Bohm's theory says, no, yeah, there is non-locality in the world. There's non-locality in quantum physics. Something is going faster than light. You can't use it to signal. You can't, uh, you can't send an instantaneous signal to the Andromeda galaxy two million light years away, but there is something in nature that goes faster than light. And there were two really interesting things about this theory that Bohm put together. Well, three. First of all, mathematically, identical to standard quantum physics. It had exactly the same predictions. It made exactly the same predictions about outcomes. And so it was just as accurate. The second thing was that it was actually not original. It was, it, he, he put it together in a more complete way than anybody else had before, but his ideas had actually been anticipated 25 years earlier at that conference in Belgium by a physicist named Louis de Broglie who had tried a theory like this and then had put it away mistakenly thinking that it doesn't work. Bohm showed, no, it does work. It absolutely works. And he did that by, by sort of creating a more complete theory than de Broglie did. And then the third thing that was really weird was this was supposed to be impossible. There was a proof that had been done in the 1930s by the greatest mathematician alive named John von Neumann. You know, von Neumann was this super genius. He was he was like reading like seven different languages by the age of nine, something like that. He had a PhD by like 19 or, or something along those you lines. Pretty much any major advanced mathematics book, yeah, his name is everywhere. Yeah. yeah. You open up almost any major computer science textbook, his name is everywhere. You open up a textbook on the history of the Manhattan Project, his name is everywhere. Von Neumann's name is stamped all over physics, math, and computer science. And he was he like his his colleagues at Princeton said that he was a demigod, but that he had made a perfect study of human behavior and could imitate humans pretty well. Like people said he was he was from I'm Mars. not sure that's a compliment. But yeah, I'm not sure either, but he was really smart. He was legitimately one of the great geniuses of the 20th century. And he wrote an incredible quantum physics textbook in the 1930s, which has had a major influence on the way we think about quantum physics to the present day, mostly a positive influence. Like he really took the theory and put it on a very firm mathematical founding uh, and and just just changed the field. But one of the things he did in that book was he proved that you couldn't do what Bohm did, and his proof was wrong. The great the great John von Neumann actually made a mistake, which. To be fair, if you knew von Neumann and you knew his work, that does sound implausible. 
but it turns out that he made a mistake and that Bohm's theory was, you know, very reasonable. But because of the existence of this proof by von Neumann and the overwhelming dominance of the Copenhagen interpretation at the time, people thought that Bohm must have gone wrong somewhere, even if they couldn't point to where. So even though his ideas of quantum theory, Bohm's theories, uh, ideas around quantum theory are reasonably well received, he still toils in some measure of obscurity because of some history and some some of his sort of like future endeavors. Yeah. And, and he, he sort of toils around like weird ideas around consciousness and whatever. Yeah. Um, but uh, so a lot of his ideas like still re- remain out of the mainstream. Yeah. But yeah. it sort of seeds what comes next. I think. Yeah. I mean, this right. idea of like, oh, I think did hidden local variables really start to emerge from a lot of Bohm's work? I mean, Bohm's, Bohm's work is what's called a hidden variables theory. It is not a hidden local variables theory because it has this non-locality. It has no non-locality yeah. in it. But it is, it's what's called a hidden variables theory because it says you know, the, that these particles have positions that we just don't know about in the theory, and that's why we don't know where particles are sometimes. And so there are variables that are hidden from us. Though it is, it's kind of a weird name. It's it's a name that's there for historical reasons, but it's a weird name because those positions that are hidden in the theory, those are the same positions of objects we see in our everyday lives. The things that are hidden to us in our everyday lives, according to Bohm's theory, are these waves. You know, like the the position of this phone that's sitting in front of me in Bohm's theory is exactly where I see it to be. So there's nothing hidden about that. But anyway, it, it yeah, hidden is used in a weird kind of It is. Theory. Yeah. The, the, the terminology in this field is weird. But yeah, Bohm's theory is definitely well known at the time that it comes out, but it's not terribly well received in part because of the dominance of this Copenhagen interpretation, in part because of this proof by John von Neumann, and in part because Bohm got totally screwed by the McCarthy era and the Red Scare in the US at the time. I mean, he he was hauled up before Congress, before uh, you know the House Un-American Activities Committee, chaired by uh, a real winner named Richard M. Nixon. He was asked uh, a lot of questions about you know who was a communist and who wasn't. He refused to name names. He was uh, arrested in his office at Princeton University on charges of contempt of Congress. And even though he was eventually cleared on those charges, uh, he ended up blacklisted and he couldn't work anywhere in the US. And so at around the time that he's working on this, in fact, at the same time that he's working on this, he's going through all of this personal and professional turmoil and ends up fleeing the US in fear you know, that he's being he's being followed around by the FBI, which he probably was. And, and he takes the only physics job he can find, which is at a university in Brazil. And this is a guy who had recommendation letters from Robert Oppenheimer, the head of the Manhattan Project, and Albert Einstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he couldn't get a job anywhere except Brazil, which at the time was not the center of the physics world. But it shows how so many of these discoveries, the, the pursuit – are deeply affected by the larger context that's happening Absolutely, around. Absolutely, yeah. And like we're familiar with that with the Manhattan Project and right. some of the yeah. other mm-hmm. sort of more famous uh, elements of, of physics history. But this yeah. is like it, just another place where it still continues to have impacts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think 
Boehm's ideas lead us, if we fast forward a, yeah, a few yeah, absolutely. decades, yes. yeah. to, to John Bell. Yes. Who yeah, really, right. whose ideas are still persisting today. Yes. Yeah. So John Bell, more than anybody else, really did the most to take down the Copenhagen interpretation, which is not to say that the Copenhagen interpretation has been taken down. It is still very much alive, but I would say it is ailing. And that's mostly due to John Bell. And John Bell was largely inspired by David Bohm's work. Yeah. So what, so Bell really starts to pursue this idea of extending the idea of these hidden variable theory and, and really putting it to the test. Like, can we have a, a world that's almost, I guess, in some ways I've, I've heard it described, it's super deterministic, where we know... Everything. Yeah. So there's I, so there's a lot in there. Yeah. yeah. So super determinism is is let's put a pin in super determinism. Yeah. We'll come back to that. Super determinism is a different thing. It's it is part of Bell's inequality. It is but yes, part. It, yes, it's part of Bell's work. It absolutely is. Yes, but um, but yeah, so is uh, is a weird concept. Um, so Bell, he's younger than Bohm. He's this quantum physics student in the 1940s, and he's really just unhappy with the stories he's being told about how quantum physics works. But then he's also told, yeah, but you know, this is how it has to work because of this proof by John von Neumann, and he's von Neumann. And so Bell says, oh, well, okay, I guess this is how it has to be. That's strange. And then in 1952, he sees these papers by David Bohm. And later he said, you know, I saw the impossible done. This was not supposed to be something that could happen, and I saw him do it. And it's very clear from these papers of David Bohm that no, you know, there are many ways of looking at quantum physics because if there's this other way of looking at it, there must be others. And Bohm's theory definitely works. There's nothing wrong with it. So Bell immediately realized, okay, there must be something wrong with this proof by von Neumann that everyone is citing and continuing to cite as a reason that what Bohm did couldn't work. So Bell thinks about this for a while and, you know, and then he goes off and he he has a life. Like he gets a PhD in physics, he gets married, he gets a job at CERN. Um, but this is in the back of his mind. But this mind. is in the back of like his mind this. the whole time. Yeah. yeah. And so then finally in the 1960s, Bell sits down and really goes after von Neumann's proof. And when he looks at it, he said, you know, it, it falls apart in your hands. He said, it's, a, it's not just wrong, it's foolish. He said, it's a silly proof. It just doesn't work. And so he, he, he sort of handily dismisses this, but he's left with another question. He says, okay, now I know that what Bohm did is fine and that you can definitely have theories like this, but Bohm's theory is still really weird because it's non-local. Do you have to have that? Or is that something like, can we find another way of doing it that isn't non-local? Because that would be nice. And so he starts playing around with the version of the EPR experiment that showed up in Bohm's textbook. And he starts modifying it and playing with it and just seeing if he can find a way to account for the way this experiment works according to quantum physics that would still leave everything local, that would, that would not involve anything going faster than light. And after a while, he realizes, you know, I don't seem to be able to do this. Maybe I can't do it. Maybe I can prove that no one can do it. And before long, he comes up with a proof that if quantum physics is right, then it must be, then nature must be non-local, unless something even stranger is going on. So 
Einstein in the EPR paper showed that the choice was between quantum physics being complete and nature being non-local. And what Bell showed was that the choice is actually between quantum physics being correct and nature being non-local. So like if quantum physics is correct, nature is non-local. If nature is local, quantum physics has to be incorrect. It has to actually give incorrect predictions about the outcomes of certain kinds of experiments that are basically real versions of this thought experiment that Bell had created by modifying Bohm's version of EPR. So Bell writes this down and publishes it, and it becomes known as Bell's theorem. And it's this, this very profound and deep and deeply misunderstood result. Well, it it has ripple effects, and it yes. still has ripple effects today. Oh, like, yes, yeah. People are still grappling with this idea. Yes, they they are. And, and it also had very practical effects. Like the entire field of quantum computing just grew out of Bell's theorem which is not something that Bell anticipated at all. It's not something that anybody really anticipated. But without Bell's work, that wouldn't have happened. So, you know, quantum computers, quantum cryptography, all of that stuff, all of the stuff that sounds like it's from Star Trek, quantum teleportation, all that comes from Bell's theorem. But the theoretical and philosophical implications of Bell's theorem and some of the practical implications of Bell's theorem, yeah, like you said, still being grappled with today. It's still not clear what's going on. These are all just, a f these are some few kind of Im important historical markers. But yeah. I think what your larger point is with the with the whole of the book is that this is an ongoing conversation. Yes. That yeah. these, we haven't found the right interpretation to quantum theory. Or if we have, we're not sure we found it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious what modern physicists think, because we, we started talking about this as like Copenhagen was the dominant thing. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it's still dominant in the way we talk about quantum mechanics. Yeah. But like behind the scenes, if we had like some physicists tied up here and, and, you know, talking about them over beers, would they sort of admit that we are somewhere else now? I think it really depends on who you got, uh, like which physicists you brought in, gave beer to, um, and also possibly how strong the beer was. Um, so but, you're really pointing to like, this is still like a deeply oh, yeah. uh, a, like argued, discussed, like, and not even argued. It, it's not like there, there are two sides to this. There's a, we just don't know. Yeah. I mean, this is, so basically every single widely used introductory quantum physics textbook still uses something like the Copenhagen interpretation. Which, and the reason I say something like, there are so many different things yeah. that go under that name, the Copenhagen interpretation, you can say, oh, you know, things don't exist until you look. Oh, thing, it doesn't mean anything to talk about things the until you look. You know, the interpretation of the Copenhagen interpretation takes many forms. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. And, and many of them are contradictory. And so you can hop from one to the other and say that you're defending Copenhagen, which anyway, um, the, the, the point is we're all taught Copenhagen in school. Every single physicist is taught the Copenhagen interpretation. And some of us just take it and run. Some of us take it and say, okay, well, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I'm gonna work on other things. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bother about that. And some people get stuck and say, look, you know, this is so weird and so strange to me that this is what I want to do. I want to understand this. 
And, and I don't mean stuck in a bad way. I mean, like that's the field that they go into. And so I think that among physicists today, there are a fair number of physicists who say things like, oh, you know, yeah, I don't know what I believe about quantum physics. I try not to think about it. And I think there are a fair number of physicists who say, well, look, the Copenhagen interpretation has to be right because that's what I learned in school. But that's less common. They'll, they'll usually say something more like, oh, the Copenhagen interpretation is right because Niels Bohr figured it all out, but then they can't point to where in Bohr's writings he figured it out. And But I think a lot of physicists will say, oh yeah, I don't know how that works. I'm not a specialist in that area. It's a good question. But the number of physicists working on this problem explicitly and the number of physicists who, even when they're not working on this problem, will admit that this is a problem has been rising dramatically over the last couple of decades. But you will still find especially among older physicists, some physicists who will say things like, oh, that's ridiculous. The Copenhagen interpretation is the only way of doing quantum physics. And that's just how it goes in any field. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I want to fast forward to kind of the, the penultimate question of this. Like, yeah. This is a fantastical historical tale. Yeah, It points to a modern question that we grapple with in, in physics yeah. that really doesn't seem to have a solution or an endpoint in sight yeah at least right now yeah yeah why does it matter i mean yeah. like why is this more more than just some sort of in-fight discussion between yeah. academics in their in their offices yeah yeah no this is a great question uh because i mean because like i said before you know quantum physics works phenomenally well it works so well you know uh, one, of, one of my favorite things about quantum physics by the way it explains why things are solid like and I, and when I say things, I mean like anything. Like it explains why that couch is not a puddle of liquid. Like that's that is one of the and why like I can't just pass my hand through it. Quantum physics is a remarkable and remarkably accurate theory. So yeah, why does it matter? It matters because the full picture of the theories that we have about the world actually informs our scientific practice, not just the practical part about like, oh, you know, these are the outcomes of the experiments, but the picture of the world that comes with the theory. That informs the choices that we make about what experiments to do and what experiments not to do. It informs our decisions about what future theories to pursue, what the next theory after quantum physics is going to be, because there is going to be one. At some point, someone's going to go beyond it. I can write down two different theories about the the lights that move across the sky at night, right? The stars and planets. I can say, okay, look, here's a theory in which the earth is at the center of the universe and the sun and the stars and the planets all go around us and they also move in some complicated ways. And then I can write down a theory that says, no, 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 no. The sun is at the center of the solar system. The earth and the other planets go around the sun and the sun itself moves around the center of the galaxy, right? Now, the second theory is correct and the first theory is wrong, but you can write down a theory with the earth at the center of the universe that will give you the same predictions for the movement of those lights across the sky, the stars and planets. So which theory do we pick? If it's 1500 and we don't have a telescope, and we don't have any of the other stuff that we have. All we have 
is this old theory that says the earth is at the center and this new theory from Copernicus and others saying, no, the sun is actually at the center of the solar system. How do we pick which theory? Well, a lot of people at that time actually said things like, well, it doesn't matter which theory we pick, but clearly the earth is at the center, but the sun-centered one makes calculations easier so you can use it as a calculational tool, but don't take it too seriously. But of course, the difference between those theories is not the observational set of differences that were available with the tools at the time, which I will add are the only tools they thought were available. The idea of something like a telescope was foreign at the time. The problem, the, the difference between those theories isn't the observational consequences of those two theories. The difference between the geocentric theory and the sun-centered theory is the consequences it has for the way that you think about the universe, which I might add is why the church at the time was so scared about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like what you're pointing to is the, well, shut up and calculate leads to meaningful results. Yeah. It's never going to be satisfying. It's never going to satisfy that part of us that is looking for, that is exploring, that is looking for answers, that yep. is looking for meaning beyond what the theory says. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and it's never going to tell us why quantum physics works, right? Because quantum physics works so phenomenally well, it must be latching on to something in the world that is there. There must be something in the world that is at least approximately like something in quantum mechanics. Otherwise, the theory wouldn't work, right? You know, I mean, this is a theory. Heisenberg and Schrodinger came up with quantum mechanics. They came up with this theory in order to explain the colors that different kinds of things make when you heat them up. That is seriously the whole, like the long and short of what prompted them to come up with this theory, okay? The theory's gone way, way, way beyond that. The theory does so much and it's so phenomenally accurate and has been for the last 90 years. There must be something in the world that resembles some piece of what is in quantum physics. Even if it's an incomplete picture, even if it's just an approximation, there must be something in the world like it. And understanding that is, is our best chance for moving past quantum physics to the next theory. And understanding that is also, as you said, our best chance for satisfying our human curiosity about our place in the world, right? I mean, uh, the choice between the sun-centered and the earth-centered theories not only had a major impact on science, it had a huge impact beyond science. I mean, it had a huge impact beyond just astronomy, right? You know, it led to Newton's physics. It led to ideas that that eventually gave us Darwin's theory of evolution, right? If you think the earth is at the center of the universe, it's going to be hard to think that humans are not at the center of creation, right? But if you think that maybe the earth is just another planet going around just another star, then maybe you're going to come up with a theory like Darwin did. And without Darwin's theory and without Newton's theory and without Copernicus's theory, you don't get some of the great culture and art that we have had over the last 500 years. I mean, without Darwin and Copernicus, you don't get 2001, right? You don't get Stanley Kubrick. And it's not just science fiction. I mean, there's there's actually, there's a wonderful book called The Age of Wonder, uh, about the the influence and interplay between science and the romantic poets of the early 1800s, right? I mean, science and culture are part of a whole. They are part of the human experience. 
and the interplay between them is complex and fascinating and giving up on getting deeper answers from our scientific theories is going to have some impact on our culture. On that note, Adam Becker, thank you so much for joining us in Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you for having me here. This is great. Coming out of that discussion with Adam, what I'm struck with is there are these bigger than life figures, Heisenberg, Bohr, Schrodinger, all these people that we've known their names throughout our schooling, but they're real people and the real people with biases and political agendas and and ideas that they wanted to take hold uh, that pushed that agenda forward that may have sort of covered up what science we talk about today. I mean, I always, I like to think of science as a meritocracy. I know science isn't that. Uh, and this was a great reminder of how science history informs the science we do today. Yeah. And I think it's just going to get more important and more easily left out. Uh, you know, there are oftentimes when I even, you know, when I when I assign papers or, you know, my classes or I teach, you know, these these topics in neuroscience and anything older than 10, like let alone 20 years, people are like, oh, well, you know, who cares about that? That's irrelevant. It's been changed. But of course, that isn't the case. You know, if you really have come to, uh, you know, a discovery and it was 25 years ago, you don't have to you know, redo that discovery 25 times, but you have to know about it in the current state. Otherwise, you're just going to be redoing somebody else's work and probably not as well. Um, so I definitely think that that's, you know, an issue moving forward as like, there's just, it's just impossible to keep on top of all the new papers that get published every day. You know, one of the things uh, I'm left with is that this isn't something that's settled. It's not like quantum physics is like a finished theory. And maybe that's why we have what we have is there is no victor. And so the reason it's muddy, muddy is because we don't know still. Well, maybe is, isn't it that true about like virtually even even the theory of evolution, you know, which is really pretty well established. You know, there are still things that we're discovering all the time. And, you know, even even redefining this idea of a missing link and what does that mean? And, you know, I think we, we, we're learning all the time. But yeah, I agree that, you know, once quantum physics becomes something that's very easy to put into a 10th grade textbook, uh, you know, you'll see who the victors are. You know, I bet you there this story exists in evolution too. We know like the three names. We'll talk about Lamarck and and Darwin, but there must be hundreds, if not thousands, of other figures whose work comes to dominate that uh, evolutionary development. But we just don't know who they are, and they probably have as much to say and as valuable an offering as some of those characters do too. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. And once again, remember that we have an ad-free feed now on our Patreon for our patrons that pledge $5 or more a month. I also want to give a shout out to all the new patrons that joined us and just in the last week as we separated from Mother Jones. Thank you for supporting our independent podcast. It's making all of this possible. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiring show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Just don't send us your explanation of quantum mechanics. I think I've had enough for my day. <laughs> at least not if that's how you purport to explain consciousness. <laughs> 
And in case it popped up in your feed, we're launching a new segment, a mini-sode, every Friday. Indra and I are doing our quick takes on the biggest stories in science news that week. Look for that every Friday. Uh, it's a short, brief, 10-minute take on the top stories that we feel came across your desk. It's a great return to something we used to do on this podcast years ago. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Andre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's! The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece with nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful! Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's! Ba da ba ba ba! Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.